very nice to see everyone here today. And uh, just to start out with um, the significance of uh, the full moon, this last full moon, which was on Tuesday. And I think most people yesterday guessed it and won what was Tuesday or what was the significant event this week. And of course, it's the full moon. And it's the full moon that commemorates the first teaching of the Buddha, the setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta. So it's a very significant event for us in the, uh, uh, in the Buddhist world. And that first teaching all the subsequent teachings the Buddha gave for 45 years can be fitted in to the Four Noble Truths. Isn't it amazing? What beautiful teaching that you can encompass everything in that initial teaching. So superb, amazing. And of course, we, uh, by practicing, by listening to Dhamma, by practicing the Dhamma, we're helping to keep that wheel rolling. So that's, that's uh, what we can do. And of course, we are practicing to purify the mind, develop wisdom, and to realize the Dhamma. So that's the point of this Dhamma, to free ourselves from rebirth, free ourselves from all the defilements and free ourselves from rebirth. And so this is, of course, the first teaching is great. And of course, the day after that, what's that? It's the beginning of the rains retreat or the rains residence with three months meditation retreat for the monks and nuns, for monastics. And um, with, for those three months, we focus on meditation and, and don't travel so much. So, for instance, for me to come here, I had to take special leave, a special leave to travel for seven days, up to seven days, <laughs> so I can come here to support the lay community. And that's one of the uh, exceptions for uh, traveling during the Vasa. So that's, uh, that's good news. And there is another event I was made aware of recently. It is, anyone else know, Kuan Yin's birthday. I didn't know goddesses had, uh, had birthdays, but it's Kuan Yin's birthday. I don't know the explanation of that, but that's what I heard. So Kuan Yin, we have a Kuan Yin statue in the garden here. And this morning, Pina put some flowers there that another, another one of the devotees here asked if you could put there in, that, uh, in front of that statue. So that's great. So today I'd like to start with, always, you know, with a quotation that will guess, may keep you guessing. What's he going to talk about? No, it's not, it's not the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> but everything is in one way or another, isn't it? That's the truth of it. Yeah, so this is a quote from... Um, from the, the numerical Dis discourses, the book of the book of eights, and it's Paharada, Paharada, who was uh, an asura, and this is what the Buddha says: Just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, so too this dhamma and discipline or training has but one taste, the taste of liberation. This is the sixth astounding and amazing quality that quality that the bhikkhus see in this Dhamma and discipline. So that's lovely, isn't it? Taste of freedom. And this is something that uh, the whole of the teachings encompasses. Every aspect of it is liberating us from, from our defilements, from our uh, attachments, the things that cause us suffering, the things that hold us back. And so uh, today I'll be focusing on a famous teaching by the Buddha, and it's called Dependent Liberation, or the Pali name for it is the Upanissa Sutta. Do many people know the Upanissa Sutta? 
I think when you when you uh, hear a bit of it, you'll probably think, oh yeah, I did. I think I did read something about that, or I heard something about it. And as I mentioned, it's liberation from the defilements, and then they are always going to be selfish desire or greed and uh, aversion or hatred and delusion. And, but it's also liberation by, through wisdom, through understanding the nature of reality, the Four Noble Truths. So this, is, this teaching is actually a different angle on how suffering ceases. This is the Third Noble Truth. It's a different presentation from the way the Buddha usually teaches it is dependent cessation. You know, that all the causes and conditions for us uh, suffering cease one by one, starting with ignorance. But this is a different presentation. It does include that, but it takes it in a different direction. And of course, I, choosed, I chose this sutta too, because it reminds me of what I've been teaching for the last two or three months, actually. I've been teaching these recollections, the anusatis, and they have this sequence, this meditation sequence, starting from uh, gladness leading to joy, to rapture, to tranquility, to happiness, to samadhi, and beyond, to wisdom. And so this, this sutta has that in it too. It's a very beautiful uh, um, presentation of it, actually. And this sutta was very important for Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> so there's another significance to this sutta. And uh, also Ayakima, she taught one of her best teachings, for me anyway, best teachings, based on this sutta. She did a retreat, for, I think about seven days, eight days, just this, this sutta. It's not a long sutta, but she took each factor and went into it and gave a beautiful a retreat on it. And she did that uh, in uh, Canada, in Nova Scotia, in Venerable uh, Pema Chodron's monastery there, which became the book, if some of you know it, When the Iron Eagle Flies, When the Iron Eagle Flies by Ayakima. Unfortunately, it was published by Penguin, so you think it's going to stay in print forever? Forget it. <laughs> it went out of print and nobody can get it. They have all the rights. <laughs> so that's it. It's a great book. It's one of my favourite Ayakima books. But also uh, uh, she taught it here locally in Geelong as well. I think it was the late 18, 1980s, not 1890s, 1980s, um, towards 89 maybe, I think it was in Geelong she taught it. Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote a, a little a booklet on this which is published through the Buddhist Publication Society. So very, it's full of detail, if you would like more detail. And it's called Transcendental Dependent Arising. Sounds tempting, doesn't it? Transcendental uh, Dependent Arising. Very curious title. <laughs> you think, what is that? And so that's published by the Buddhist Publication Society, available as a free download on the internet. And also Arjun Brahmali, he did one on dependent liberation as well, this same sutta. Uh, so it's a very, very much uh, discoursed about sutta, a very famous sutta. And it is actually a very unusual sutta in the uh, teachings because you don't see this presentation uh, anywhere else, actually. But it is a very logical um, presentation. And just to mention, for those that don't know, there are five collections of the Buddha's teachings, big enormous amount of teaching really and they include the long discourses the middle discourses you think the short ones but it's not numerical discourses and those discourses that are connected that are thematically connected and the last one the minor 
uh, discourses, or the minor collection it's called really, and that's a huge collection, despite the fact that it's minor. It's got the Dhammapada, the Itivutika, it's got the Sutanipata, Terigata, Teragata. So it's got a lot in it, but a lot of later works as well. So it's a very, very big... So those, those five collections, and this teaching is from the connected discourses, or as Ajahn Sajato calls them, the linked discourses, the Samyutta Nikaya in Pali. And this one is called the Upanisha Sutta, which is Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Sajato translates as, well, he doesn't like Ajahn Sajato. <laughs> he gave a talk recently, he said, I don't like this term, Ajahn. <laughs> so he prefers Bhante, I think, Bhante Sajato, or Bhikkhu, maybe Bhikkhu. Because Ajahn is a um, Thai tradition. So, and it's called Vital Conditions. That's his translation of Upanisa. And what I plan to do is read a bit of it. That will probably be a bit um, slow for people. So you get a flavour. You get the flavour of the Buddha's teaching, how he taught. And I think that can be useful. It may seem a bit dry. When I read the teachings, I think, how amazing that anybody could express it like this. It's almost scientific, the way it's expressed, and incredibly comprehensive at the same time. Very, um, what do you say, concise, but incredibly comprehensive, you know, the way the Buddha presents it. It's just amazing. So I'll read it, and I'll just do a little bit of commenting on this first section, but not much, because otherwise... No time for the main part, which I'm going to focus on, everybody focuses on, which is dependent liberation. And it's very relevant for all of us, actually, so I will focus on that. But I'll read the, the first section of this sutra. It's not a long sutra, so. so it's called Vital Conditions. And it's at Savati, where the Buddha spent 23 rains retreats. So it was his main place of residence. And he starts out, Mendicants, this is monks actually, it's a very unusual word in English, mendicants, very old-fashioned. Mendicants, I say the ending of defilements, this is the asavas, is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know or see. Seems pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> These are the deep defilements that keep us being reborn again and again and again. And then the Buddha continues, for one who knows and sees what? Good question, <laughs> I think. And he says, and this is the answer, such is form, such is the origin of form, such is the ending of form, and then such is feeling, such is the origin of feeling, such is the ending of feeling. And then he does the same with such is perception, such, is, such are choices, such is consciousness, such is the origin of consciousness, such is the ending of consciousness. The ending of defilements is for one who knows and sees this. Anyone here know and see this? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it, it sounds... Uh, and of course, these are the... Uh, I think people recognise them. They're called more traditionally five aggregates. I think five components of personality is a more recent uh, way of expressing it. This body and this mind made up of the body, of course, and then feelings, perceptions, intentional activities, that's what I call them, intention and consciousness, or as Ajahn Brahm calls it, consciousnesses, to avoid the idea of this super-consciousness that... Uh, has a separate existence that goes on forever, which the Buddha didn't uh, subscribe to. 
So it, fin- it continues from there. And he says, I say, this knowledge and knowledge, oh right, wait a minute, what is, I think there's a bit more there. Oh, that's right, the ending of defilements is for one who knows and sees. And then he's talking about, I say, this knowledge of ending and it's of defilements has a vital condition. It does not lack a vital con- condition. What is it? You should say, freedom, liberation, <laughs> vimuti. So he's going backwards. This is what the Buddha's doing, going from being enlightened and going back to the, right to the beginning of, what, of the chain of causation. And this is a very important principle in Buddhism, that things arise due to causes and conditions. And cause and effect is running this body and mind, not a self, not an I, a me and a mind. This is the idea. And then the Buddha continues. So we get, I say that freedom has a vital condition. It doesn't lack a vital condition. And what is it? You should say dispassion. This is viraga, and I talk about it later. I say that dispassion has a vital condition. What is it? You should say disillusionment. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> disillusionment. Doesn't sound like a great thing. But anyway, I've got a different translation I'll give later. Turning away, the mind turning away. I say that disillusionment has a vital condition. What is it? You should say truly knowing and seeing. And then the Buddha continues. I say that truly knowing and seeing has a vital condition. What is it? This is an interesting one. You should say immersion. Anyone know what immersion is? <laughs> it's samadhi. It is samadhi. That's what it, sh- it should be. Something like Ajahn Brahm would use stillness, one-pointedness. This is other ter- other ways of expressing it. But Ajahn um, Bhante Sajato likes uh, immersion. I say that immersion has a vital condition. What is it? You should say bliss. Sounds good, doesn't it? I say that bliss has a vital condition. What is it? You should say tranquility. I say that tranquility has a vital condition. What is it? You should say rapture. I say rapture has a vital condition. What is it? You should say joy. So this is a sequence that I was talking about that is a meditative sequence that takes us to samadhi, to one-pointedness, and then to the mind being very pure and able to see very, very deeply, which is one of the common themes in the Buddha's teaching. And then he continues, I say that joy has a vital condition. What is it? You should say faith. And then I say faith has a vital condition. What is it? This is the interesting one. You should say suffering. Isn't that interesting? I get on to that in a little bit. I say that suffering has a vital condition. What is it? You should say rebirth, (laughs) being reborn, enables us to suffer old age, sickness and death, and all the other things that arise when we get reborn. I say that rebirth has a vital condition, and what is it? You should say continued existence. This is bawa, and this is where we can take rebirth in different, in different form, in different sort of realm, worlds, we call them, yeah. I say that continued existence has a vital condition. What is it? You should say grasping. This is clinging, often called clinging, uh, sometimes called uh, fuel. Ajahn Brahm quite likes fuel, yeah. 
And I say that grasping has a vital condition. And what is it? You should say craving. I say that craving has a vital condition. And what is it? You should say feeling. And then it continues. You should say contact. You should say sixth sense field. You should say name and form. You should say consciousness. You should say choices. This is sankharas. I say that choices have a vital condition. They don't lack a vital condition. And what is it? Vital condition for choices. You should say ignorance. That's where we begin. <laughs> we can start going the other way. The Buddha presents it in a reverse order and then he does it in a forward order. Incredible comprehensive way he does it. He often gives you the negative first and then the positive. It's the way he teaches an incredibly uh, comprehensive, skillful way. It covers all possibilities. So this is, it may sound, uh, to many people who haven't heard this, of course, this is dependent origination, um, this, the, the last part, how suffering arises in this world. And I won't talk on that very much because that's a whole talk or series of talks in itself, the dependent origination. So I'm aiming to, hopefully... <laughs> Talk about dependent liberation. So the first factor, of course, is ignorance. That's ignorance of the Four Noble truth, Truths. And it gives rise to what he calls the choices. Choices are the vital condition. Uh, uh, ignorance is the vital condition for choices. This is Sankara. So being ignorant, not knowing the Four Noble Truths, we act and speak and think and we create karma that way. We create negative karma and positive karma that will affect our uh, consciousness in this life this operates in this life and also will contribute to when we take rebirth the sort of consciousness that we have at that time so this and those choices are a vital condition for consciousness we, we saw and that when we have a when we are reborn when we have a consciousness the form the name they call it name and form the body and mind we have will conform to that sort of consciousness that we have. If we have a kangaroo consciousness, we'll get a body that suits uh, a kangaroo and a mind that suits a kangaroo. Pretty, uh, pretty simple sort of experience, I think, for kangaroos. I see them quite a lot at the monastery. They're a bit unlike human beings, as I say. When I see them standing in the range, they're very cold and they look a bit dejected and they're not even eating sometimes. It's so miserable. I think at least, at least, they're not thinking. I wish I was on the Gold Coast. <laughs> we would be, but a kangaroo doesn't. And so, and this is the, the name and form, this is the body and mind we get with the particular consciousness. Then we have the, the six senses that come with the body and the mind. So, well, with the body, isn't it, the senses, but the mind has to have the linking consciousnesses for it too. So the six senses, of course, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind thinking. And then we can have contact through those uh, five senses and also through the, well, through the mind as, too, as well, we have contact with what we see, hear, smell, taste and touch and think. And so from that, then the feelings arise. Like it, don't like it, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling, who cares, <laughs> uh, arise. And then craving, we want to do something about it. Great. If, it's good. if we like it, go for it. If we dislike it, get rid of it and so forth. If it's neither this or that, then we ignore it. 
And that gives rise to um, grasping. So when we have the craving and we've found something to be a happiness or we, t we really reject it in a strong way, we cling to that and we want to repeat it. And so this is the clinging or grasping. And then grasping gives rise to the existence that we will take rebirth in and then to a certain extent the existence we live in here and now. So if we've got a lot of desire, we will be uh, living in a world full of wanting things, and which will be very unpleasant in a, in a very much, in a very uh, real way, actually. And then from this continued existence, uh, this is where we can take rebirth. And uh, this is where, the, uh, uh, where our consciousness will take us. The Buddha says three things uh, determine our rebirth. First of all, consciousness, the sorts of consciousness we've developed in this life will determine where we're going to. Uh, and the, uh, the seed, the Buddha said, is like, is, is, uh, is consciousness. The water, the moisture, is our craving, our wanting. And the field, and the possibilities of, exist, of being reborn is due to our karma the actions of body, speech, and mind. So that's how the Buddha describes rebirth. But we start here, <laughs> which is suffering is a vital condition for faith. I think that is a really, this is where most of the people who, who write about this sutta start. This is where the, trans, the um, dependent liberation starts. And it's a very practical start. Suffering is a vital, a vital condition for faith. Who would think that? But it's very much the, it can seem strange, but suffering, the difficulties, the problems in our life are the great motivators. That's what gets us up and going. We have to deal with the situation. If we've got a problem, if there's big suffering in our lives, we have to do something about it. Otherwise it crushes us. So it's a great motivator. I call it the cattle prodder. <laughs> it really gets us going. And it means that we're motivated. We're looking for an answer, looking for some way of dealing with our experience of our problems, our sufferings, our difficulties in life, whether they be physical or mental. And then we hear a teaching, we hear a teaching, and we, we resonate with it. We feel like, yeah, this could be the answer. So, and this, this could be the answer to my problem. Usually it's the answer to the human situation. This is what the Buddha is offering, really. Solution to all the difficulties and problems we have, the overcoming of suffering. And when we hear something, we think, oh, yeah, this could be very helpful for me. This sort of enthusiasm comes up, this feeling of faith we call it faith, sometimes conviction, confidence. We think, yes, maybe this is it. And when we, uh, um, when we hear this, this uh, teaching, and this has to be coming from, in terms of Buddha's teachings, from the true Dhamma. We call it true Dhamma, Sudhamma. So it has to be an accurate, accurate teaching of the Buddha's uh, teachings. And... Usually for, um, for it to be going very deeply, it has to be someone that has already awakened to a stage of the Buddha's teaching. They've seen the Dhamma for themselves. 
And so they, they am known and seen. We used these words before <laughs> in the Sutta, the Dhamma. So then it really can go home. It can really strike a deep chord within us. And we think, don't we, of Ajahn Chah and teachers like that, Ajahn Brahm. Admittedly, they have great gifts of communication, but this is, this is where faith can arise, through that communication, but also through their depth of understanding the teachings, understanding the nature of life. This is what the teachings are about. They are reflecting reality. And so this is why faith can arise um, from suffering. So this is a bit extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody has suffering. Buddha talked about the three sufferings. He said suffering of suffering, or suffering of painful feeling, whether it be mental or physical, dukkha, dukkata, and also the suffering of change, when things change, when our relationships fall apart, when the climate changes, whatever, there are many different changes that give rise to this uh, feeling of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And then, of course, the last one, the nature of reality, that incredible impermanence that means everything breaks down eventually, everything changes uh, without notice. So this is, uh, this is what um, someone who is teaching the Dhamma can convey to somebody and it can help them in a big way, give rise to faith. And now, this is the next bit. Faith is a vital condition for joy. When you hear something, you think, wow, great. That's a bit like a lifeline. <laughs> then you feel quite excited, actually, joy. You feel a lot of uh, joy, or sometimes they call it gladness, uh, because we've, we've, we think, at last, light at the end of the tunnel, we have the possibility of helping me out of this problem, dealing with my uh, feeling of un unsatis uh, unsatisfactoriness or feeling of uh, suffering. Um, so there is this joy that arises, and this joy is an essential quality for human beings, for all beings, really, in the mind. It's a health food for the mind. Without some joy in the mind, the, the life becomes very dreary and dull. We become depressed. And it's, joy is mental, but it's it giving rise to mental energy. This is the important thing energy to try out what this what we've heard to practice it give it a go and this means you know practicing the noble eightfold path and of course when we have that joy and that energy then we will practice generosity ethical living we'll try to also develop the mind and this is the uh, developing avoiding and letting go of negative states of mind <laughs> and developing and maintaining positive states of, uh, states of mind. Sounds easy, but it's a big practice. <laughs> so this is important. And we will have right intention. So we'll be looking for happiness in the right place. This is called renunciation. Looking for happiness in here, instead of trying to get it from the five sense world that we experience. And developing, practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, coming from friendliness, kindness, patience, and also the third quality, right intention, coming from caring and compassion, non-harming. So these are the qualities that we would develop based on joy, based on the energy of joy. And then in uh, developing the mind, in meditation, 
The next factor is joy is a vital condition for rapture. This sounds great, doesn't it? Everybody, everybody wants to get into this. So in meditation, there has to be the arising of this joy, this gladness in the mind. And this gives rise to this experience of piti, rapture, a feeling of, uh, it feels, uh, most meditators will say it feels like a very physical one, but waves of energy going through the body, a very coarse a uh, very strong form of uh, this rapture, sometimes tingling. There's many mas- uh, manifestations of it. And the Vasudhimagra, I think it has at least five. There's maybe more than that, actually, they talk about different types of rapture. It can even um, give rise to the body rising off the ground, that sort of thing. So this is this is developing uh, the, the uh, this energy of uh, joy becoming even stronger. And then rapture is a condition for tranquility. So when that rapture calms down, when that energy calms down, then the body and mind become calm. And the body, because the body is very tranquil, it can disappear for us, or parts of the body can disappear. So it's quite common for meditators to experience hands disappearing or feet disappearing. No, it's not numbness. <laughs> and sometimes they get excited, sometimes they get actually more commonly probably afraid. Oh, no, it's gone, where is it? Because I usually am aware of it. So that's what can happen. So this is the experience of letting go of the body, really. It means that we're letting go of the five senses. And so it's a very um, uh, significant experience, actually. So this rapture is an important ingredient for the mind uh, to focus the mind, giving rise to this tranquility, yes. And it's not... If people would wonder how this could be a pleasant experience, then we can reflect on what we've heard about out-of-the-body experiences. People are very happy when they out-of-the-body often, and when they have to come back to the body, they say, oh my goodness, it's so heavy. And the same for near-death experiences. It's not uncommon for people to feel angry <laughs> that they've been brought back, they've had to come back to this body. So this is, gives us an idea of this experience that of tranquility when the body can disappear in meditation. And it's only temporary. It will come back when we come out of the meditation. And then from that um, experience, tranquility is a vital condition for bliss. And then we go on to bliss is a vital condition for immersion, for one-pointedness, for stillness in the mind. And this is what is the magnet, what is the glue for the mind coming together, becoming one-pointed. So then you have the five factors of first jhana, which is this rapture and this happiness and is uh, the application of the mind to the object, staying with the object, and then the one-pointedness. These are five factors of the first jhana. They're coming together because of this bliss, bringing the mind together. If you're having a great time, who'd go anywhere else? So the mind is like that, it will stay, stay, stay put, it will stay still, and then there will be a perception of a singleness of perception because the mind is focused on such a small area. What's it focused on? Sometimes they used to translate jhana as trance, 
couldn't be further from the uh, the reality because you always hear jhana meditators talk about the happiness and joy, the bliss they experience in that state and super awareness to mindfulness. So there we are. And then the Buddha continues, gets better and better. <laughs> and then immersion or this uh, stillness is a vital condition for truly knowing and seeing. And of course, it's truly knowing and seeing. One of the things that we can truly know and see are the five components of personality mentioned at the beginning of the sutta. And, uh, of course, what that means is really seeing the nature of, that, of these five components that we take to be I, me, and mine. <laughs> this uh, body, and this, the feelings we experience, the perceptions we have, and the intentional activities, that we, uh, the will that we use, and the consciousness, these five. And it's seeing very, very deeply that they don't, they're impermanent. They don't last. They can't last. They're always changing moment by moment. Seeing also the unsatisfactoriness or the suffering of these five uh, components of personality. In fact, if you know your first noble truth, the Buddha says, in short, these five components of personality are suffering. So that's very interesting. <laughs> it's got very deep implications, actually. So... Uh, so this is what someone is seeing when they are truly knowing and seeing. And they also will see, of course, um, because of the impermanence, we will never, never get permanent happiness, permanent satisfaction. It's not on offer. <laughs> it's not possible. It just don't, won't work. And because of this impermanence and this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, this body and mind can be seen as just processes, that there's no self, there's no owner. This is one of Ajahn Brahm's terms, no owner. <laughs> it's lovely. I, I, uh, recently I listened to a talk by Ajahn Brahm on, we listened to a talk actually, the monks and the, some of the nuns, yeah, some of the nuns came and lay people at the monastery on liberation, what I'm talking about today. And one of the two things he emphasised was that to develop the perception of just being a visitor, not an owner. And he said, and he, he mentions being no owner. And I remembered in 10 years, no, 2005, so that's 18 years ago, being in Thailand. And I saw these T-shirts, no owner. I thought, well, fantastic. <laughs> they had no owner in English and then in Thai as well. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I never thought where they came from. But when I heard this talk, I thought, ah, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> He may have originated it because Ajahn Jayasara, an English monk in, who lives in Thailand and was uh, at the, uh, the monastery for foreign monks where they can ordain, he probably he has quite a bit of influence, so he may have been driving that, I'm not sure. So, and of course, causality is one of the uh, big things that comes into play, cause and effect, because when we teach that there is no self, there's no owner. What is running the show? Cause and effect. And so this is, uh, our job is to get the causes and effects in place, if we can, inclining towards them, developing them. And that way we can uh, start the process which will 
uh, will be started, say, started from suffering leading to faith. This is a causation. This is a process of cause and effect. So once we start the initial cause, we're off. <laughs> we're home and hosed, but uh, we can go. Often people think, I'll do it. I'll get enlightened. I'll get jhana. Willpower, it won't work one bit. <laughs> It will lead to frustration and it will lead to, it won't lead to enlightenment actually. This big I, getting, wanting, is the opposite of uh, where the Dhamma is going to. This is Tanha really. <laughs> so it's wisdom power we need. And so we continue, so we can, yeah, I've got to finish off. And truly knowing and seeing is a vital condition for disillusionment. It doesn't sound great, does it? Disillusionment. People think, oh no, really? And the Pali for this is Nibida, and it's actually a very positive emotion. It's actually turning away, I like. Uh, disenchantment is, is another possibility. That's uh, uh, another, another one. Uh, disenchantment means we're breaking the spell, breaking the spell of the five senses, being so taken up, looking for all our happiness from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching. We're under, we're completely under the spell of these five senses. Ajahn Brahm likes repulsion or revulsion because he says this is what pushes us off the wheel of samsara. And that's very, that can be the case. I think it's a bit, bit negative though. It sounds a bit like it's coming from aversion. But really, where this nibbida, this turning away comes from, is from a deep understanding of impermanence, uh, seeing impermanence, dukkha, and non-self, really. And a good example was a story uh, a monk told me of seeing this beautiful landscaped garden, just newly landscaped, looked fantastic, you know, pond and, and uh, nice little uh, hills and plants and trees. And as he was watching it, he could suddenly, in his mind, he could see all the weeds coming up, the pond getting all this algae over it, everything looking a bit worn and, and used. And, and when, when he was delighting in that landscape to begin with, oh, how beautiful, it looks great, just like these Japanese gardens. But when this came up, mind detached, completely flipped and withdrew and had enormous happiness as well. So this is, this is what this Nibbana is doing for us, turning us away, but it's giving us this great happiness, which you wouldn't think from disillusionment, you wouldn't think from even disenchantment, certainly not from revulsion and repulsion, that would be the case. But it's a very positive emotion. So, and then, so this is the, um, what they call disillusionment, I call turning away. Uh, we've only got a couple more left, so that's all right. How many? I don't know how many of the links you mean. Uh, number, one. number one is suffering that we started on. Oh, all right. Yeah. yeah. In a little while. Yes, yes, it is number It is number one, actually. What I think I get what you're talking This is the next one, actually. It's, and you can ask a question afterwards, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Disillusionment, otherwise we won't finish it. Disillusionment is a vital condition for dispassion. And this is viraga. And I think this is what you're talking about. Dispassion, another translation is uh, instead of disillusion, uh, instead of, uh, yeah, dispassion is good. Fading away is another term for it. But what is it the fading away of? 
and this is, I think, what you're talking about, craving, craving, and the desire for happiness from the sensory world. So this is the first, the, the major defilement for all of us. We often call it greed, loba, uh, uh, selfish desire. And the next step, usually from viraga, it's not in this sutta, is niroda, cessation of craving. And then the next step usually is upasama, peace. Because once craving has ceased, when all this wanting, desiring has ceased, but by seeing with wisdom, not by willpower, once it ceased, peace. <laughs> the war is over. All that wanting that we thought was our best friend, the only way we'd get happiness, what we want, has finished and it's complete peace. And then usually the Buddha goes on to uh, enlightenment or awakening happening, Sambodaya, and then Nibbanaya. But here it goes on from dispassion as a vital condition for freedom, vimuti. So that's liberation. And of course, this is the four stages of awakening, isn't it? The first stage, stream enterer, the second stage, uh, once returner, second, third stage, non returner, and the last stage, arahant or full enlightenment. And this is coming about because the liberation of the mind, the liberation of the mind from the defilements, this is what I was just talking about actually, but it's the complete and permanent ceasing, selfish desire, greed, loba, aversion and delusion. So that's the ending of those negative qualities. This is how you define awakening actually, is, is the full awakening. And then it also culminates in the liberation by wisdom. And this is understanding the Four Noble Truths, understanding the nature of reality. Then the person is liberated. What's liberated? It's not the person. Any guesses? What is liberated? Mind. It is the mind, the citta. Yeah, it's the mind that's liberated. And then the last one. Good. <laughs> Freedom is a vital condition for the knowledge of ending, ending of defilement, asavas. And this is that reviewing knowledge, um, that the pachavekana knowledge. Reviewing what? First of all, seeing what defilements have gone, but most importantly, seeing what fetters. These are the sanyojana, the things that keep us coming back again and again. We call them the ten fetters. So somebody at this stage will be looking at those ten fetters to see if any of them are still there, still holding them, still um, binding them to being reborn. And of course, it is not, it's the ending of these defilements, it's the ending of ignorance, and so. And then this is the complete awakening. If one has checked the ten uh, samyojana, ten fetters, and found they've gone, all of them have gone. But the most important one, the first one, the one that really makes the big difference, is Sakaya Ditti, the abandoning of a view of self, personality view, they sometimes call it, an I, me, myself, in here, permanent, going on. When that's seen through, then the rest of the path to enlightenment, the other stages of enlightenment can happen one after another, till we get there. It's not really, the Buddha calls us, we're not even trainees, unfortunately. <laughs> we're going towards becoming trainees.
trainees. And when we practice the Noble Eightfold Path, it takes us to stream entry and beyond. That's the point of it. But when there is the knowledge of ending, then uh, I would like to quote from the Dhammachakapawatna Sutta, setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma. This is what happens when someone becomes enlightened. Well, the Buddha became enlightened, actually. But when my knowledge and vision, knowing and seeing, <laughs> of the, these four noble truths as they really are, was thoroughly purified, then I claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, its maras and its brahmas, and in this generation with its ascetics and brahmins, its devas and humans. The knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my mind. This is my last birth. Now there is no more renewed existence. This is what the Blessed One said, elated. The bhikkhus or the group of five delighted in the Blessed One's statement. So, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And of course the result was one stream entry, wasn't it? Anya Kandanya, one of the monks got it. <laughs> got it during the uh, listening to that discourse on the Four Noble Truths. And he got it. He became a stream entry. And then in the, I think in the next week or two, the others got stream entry and then they heard the, the sutta, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the sutta on the characteristic of non-self. And then they became arahants. So that was pretty fast track, fast track. May we be fast track. So I hope that gives you some, um, something to inspire you with, that from our dukkha, from our suffering, enlightenment it can lead to all the way to enlightenment to awakening it's the stuff of seeing the nature of reality and once we've seen the nature of reality we can be at peace we can have that wisdom of knowing how things are we know the meaning of life and we know there is a way out <laughs> of repeated birth and birth birth aging sickness and death and all the other stuff that comes with it so wonderful. So I'd like to just finish now with the last section of the sutta, and that's it. And it says, this is a simile. It's like when it rains heavily on a mountain top, and the water flows downhill to fill the hollows, crevices, and creeks. And they become full, and they fill up the pools. The pools fill up the lakes. The lakes fill up the streams, and the streams fill up the rivers. And as the rivers become full, they fill up the ocean. In the same way, ignorance is a vital condition for choices. Freedom is a vital condition for the knowledge of ending of defilement. So I'd like to finish there. Sadhu, 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 sadhu. So there we are. Made it. I thought I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> it's a wonderful sutta. I must admit, I was very, very... Uh, when I was focusing on it this morning, I was just very uh, filled with happiness just reading it and thinking, contemplating it. So I hope you were too and thinking, not thinking, what's that about? <laughs> so are there any questions from the floor or complaints or, or just comments? Arjun, we might start with a question online if that's okay. Yeah, I think it seems to be. So, uh, we've got from Rick um, from Indiana, actually. Indiana, wow. Yeah, 
Um, Must be late at night, is it? I think. Yeah, I think it might be. Oh, late. Yeah, no, late, late night. Yes. So Rick's question is: hmm. What is a skillful way to relate to a friend's chronic mental illness? Yeah. Example: A personality disorder. Uh, and then he's added, how do I relate in terms of impermanence? And then continued after, he's also said, it helps to finally surrender to having them having a serious, long-lasting condition, but I don't want to create it as a solid, unchanging thing. A solid what? A solid, unchanging thing. Oh, that's very good. That's what I was thinking when you mentioned that. It's a friend, though. Isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. very hard. When, whenever we are, um, have friends or family members that have chronic conditions, it's very difficult because this is not going to go away immediately, whatever it be, whether it be a physical condition or a mental condition. And so, uh, of course, we need enormous um, patience, enormous kindness to ourselves and to the person concerned, Kindness to ourselves in the sense we just know when enough's enough, we have to take a break <laughs> and we do what we can to help that person out of caring and compassion. So this is all part of the Buddha's teaching. Um, but we always have to realize we've got to be kind to ourselves too. And he's, you're thinking in terms of impermanence, and that is true. You know, whatever condition, chronic or otherwise, it is impermanent. But chronic things last for a lot longer. Um, obviously, whether they be physical or mental. So it is good to keep in mind it won't always be like this. It's not permanent, and I think that gives some relief too. Um, and very, very important is to to realise that non-self, the fact that this mind and body are a process, means that it can change, it can be changed. Because when we have chronic conditions, it's really oppressive. We feel like it's forever. <laughs> And for somebody who's maybe this is a, like in a caring capacity, that can be very crushing and very hard to bear. So these things can be helpful. And, but always know one's limit, do one's best. You know, uh, sometimes this self-sacrificing can do some harm to, the to oneself, you know, because we haven't realised our own limits. We're not being kind to ourselves. Sometimes when people talk about metta, they say... Well, people just walk over me. They'll use me, use me like a doormat. That's what they say, don't they? Doormat. And of course, that means that we're not being kind to ourselves. If we're kind to ourselves, we can do as Byron Katie says. You know, she says, "I hear where you're coming from. I know what you're experiencing. I, oh, well, it's difficult and everything." And no. But for us to say no in a nice way is difficult. But it's, it's being kind to ourselves. We don't have to say it with any negativity. So this is uh, an important thing for somebody who's uh, caring for or involved with somebody with a chronic condition. Enormous patience. And it's a great teaching in dukkha. <laughs> for the person who's uh, got the chronic condition, as well as somebody who is uh, related to that person or caring for that person. It just teaches you the dukkha that can, we can experience having a body and mind. But how much of that dukkha is reduced by understanding the nature of reality, understanding the conditions that apply in this life. Often a lot of the suffering we have, particularly from chronic conditions, is not really understanding 
the nature of life, the impermanence of it, the unsatisfactoriness of it, and the non-self aspect of it. That can make a big, big difference, even at a conceptual level, and give a lot of uh, relief, in a sense. So this is why often, you know, many Buddhists in Buddhist countries, when they get old, they get the sufferings of old age, sickness and death, they're much easier able to accept it. In the West, we often get grumpy. We think, oh, I didn't buy into this. I, d I don't want life. Life shouldn't be like this. And of course, this is not reading the fine print of existence. <laughs> Old age is like this. It always has been like this, whether it's for you or whoever. But somebody who has a conceptual framework that, that says, yeah, this is normal. <laughs> this is what we get when we are born. And it's part of our inheritance, actually. So uh, then that makes a big, big difference. So are there any... Um, Thank you very much, uh, Indiana. I wish you well for that. It's not an easy one. It's, uh, if you see it as part of your practice too, that's another skillful way to be able to, to use it sometimes is you know, just to see I'm practicing the Buddha's teaching by the way I'm, I'm uh, taking care of this person, relating to this person. Yeah. Good, good. Thank you. So any comments, questions and complaints? Yes. <laughs> no, no questions now? No. Uh, Arjun, we have another question online. Uh, so you you actually mentioned the Anattalakana Sutta before. Yeah. Someone's asked, what kind of meditation can help understand the Anattalakana Sutta? How to practice, how do I practice non-self? Right, right. The very interesting thing about the three characteristics of existence, people may find this extraordinary. They're operating every moment of existence. It's not just sometimes. It's here and now. Impermanence is happening while we're sitting here. Unsatisfactoriness is happening while we're sitting here. Some people are uncomfortable. Some people are thinking, why? When can we end? Some people are thinking, what about lunch? Etc. <laughs> and non-self is also very, very evident. Anyone here running this body, who's pumping the blood? Who's looking after all the hormones? Who's looking after the breathing? Anyone here consciously breathing? These three characteristics are here all the time. We just, we don't pay attention to them. And especially non-self is, you can see it. I mean, the body is a very good example. We think, oh, it's my body, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But we, if we were, if it was our body, surely we would be running it. We'd have a good, we'd have the, the manual that went with it. <laughs> but we don't have the user manual. And the same with the mind. People say, the mind's me. And then they have all this thinking they can't, can't stop. It just goes by itself because of the input, it'll just keep running, you know, because we run on habit, we run on conditioning. So it just keeps going and going. And so we, we get these repetitive strains of thinking and we just think, oh no, I don't want this. And that doesn't stop it one bit. It just keeps going. In fact, it feeds it, doesn't it? It usually gets worse. And um, it's only by coming to peace with the fact this is the nature of it really then it can calm down. But also, when we have moods and all these different uh, uh, mental, emotional states we experience, who controls, who, who in their right mind, who owns this mind, would ever want to put up with anxiety, depression, fear, all these negative emotions that uh, we are very prone to? Who would want them? So this is my mind? <laughs> I don't think so. So really, we're getting indicators of non-self, 
of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, of impermanence, nothing lasts. All the time, we just have to look around, look around. In the, the important, uh, the important focus for this contemplation is always ourselves. This, our experience, because this is where it makes a big difference. Sometimes people think of contemplating. Ah, well, I'll get out the Buddhist dictionary, and I do look at it a lot. Actually, <laughs> look up a Nietzsche and Dukkha and Anatta, you know, and all this sort of thing. That's not really contemplating. It doesn't really hit home until we see it, how it applies to us in this moment, in our experience. But it's always there. It's always there. So, and one of the, uh, the, the, the most amazingly uh, um, uh, things we're not aware of in terms of non-self is this wanting, craving, desire is non-self. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not myself. That's amazing. And if we actually saw that, that this is actually like the slave driver that's pushing us around. It's like that overbearing boss that's telling us to do this, do that. We have to have this, not this, not that. If we actually saw that, then we have the chance of letting go of it and saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, right. There's a little bit of space for saying no or just to, to not really feel like we have to do it. But when we think it's us, when we identify with it, when we think it's utter, not anatta, then we, we are the slaves of craving. Tanha dasa, I really like this term. <laughs> but nobody thinks like that. When they go to Chadston, they don't think, as they rush in the doors, as they park their cars, compete with others, they don't think, I'm the slave of craving. <laughs> we will think, no, craving is my, I'm, I'm the master, craving is the slave. No way. We've got, the, we've got the cart in front of the horse there. <laughs> so there we are. That's a bit about non-self and the three characteristics. So I think it's almost time. Any other questions from... No? Yeah, no, it looks like. Any other online questions? Uh, if you've got time for one more, I, I guess this... Uh... This is a deep end. This is the, it's a very uh, flow on effect of the questions we've got here. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Arjun, would you speak on how one should interrupt the link between feeling and craving so that we may prevent craving from beginning? Ah, the link between feeling and craving, right. Right, I think understanding the process that's happening is the way that we can... Um, reduce the power of feeling to give rise to craving, understanding feeling, understanding the dependent origination. This is the dependent origination of suffering, how it arises. When we understand that, it actually can uh, make us, give us the space to stand back and say, yeah, this is a pleasant feeling, but I don't have to have it, I don't have to take it any further. That's easier said than done. <laughs> this is an unpleasant feeling. I don't have to want to get rid of it. I don't have to uh, try and uh, obliterate it. And, um, and also when there's neutral feeling, um, then not uh, just, just to ignore it. That's how we normally react. But just knowing this is very helpful. And knowing that where feeling leads to, when we like something, it leads to craving. When we dislike, it leads to aversion. And when we... Um, when it's neutral, it's neither 
uh, pleasant or unpleasant, then we tend to ignore it. Um, then when we understand this, then we can also understand craving. We have an idea that craving is not our best friend. It's actually the enemy within. <laughs> it's actually the source of samsara. When we know that, it can change things. And we can um, uh, then say no or, as I say, step back. Not necessarily have to follow that feeling, not necessarily have to follow that craving. So that, is, that theory is very, very useful. But of course, you know, the, uh, the biggest way that the Buddha recommended for over reducing that feeling that goes towards craving is really developing the spiritual happinesses, you know, the pleasant feelings within, the, uh, the spiritual pleasant feelings within. And by, by actually going towards them, by inclining towards them, we turn away from the world or the five senses. We don't have to go to Chadston. <laughs> we can. We have choice then. We have a bit of a space. But always with the Buddhist teaching, isn't it? What's the key? The key thing is wisdom. Ignorance is what we are having to deal with. It's because we're ignorant that we, we feel like, well, it feels good. Do it. Didn't we have that saying? I think, if it feels good, do it. <laughs> Remember, Ayakima said she saw a bumper sticker like that once. She, she, I think she wanted to get out of the car. and <laughs> She really, really thought, no, no. <laughs> it sounded like it. So it was quite funny that. So this is, this is what, when we uh, reduce our ignorance, we can have more and more freedom and go incline more and more towards happiness and more and more to liberating the mind. So this is, you know, it's possible. So it's good. So, yeah. Oh, no. So thank you for that question about how to deal with feeling Vedana. And there's, a, of course, Satipatthana, there's the Vedana Nupassana, you know, contemplating pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. I did a retreat yesterday on scanning, and, of course, Goenka, he calls that Vedana Nupassana, but his is more related to the sensations. So I, I think it's more related to Kaya Nupassana, but the, just the general understanding of whether what we're experiencing is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. This is Vedana Nupassana. And also being aware of whether it's coming from a, a sensory uh, experience, from from material ex uh, experience, uh, physical experience, or a spiritual or mental experience. So this is where the Buddha talks about Vedana and Upassana. It sounds a bit theoretical, but we're all driven. We're all slaves to pleasant feeling, <laughs> believe it or not. And we all run away like crazy from painful feeling. You think, well, that's just common sense, isn't it? But it, it actually keeps us really much, pretty much in bondage, actually, running after one, running away from another. And, uh, and in between the neutral feeling, well, who cares? But for a meditator, of course, that neutral feeling can be seen as peaceful, as um, some form of equanimity, acceptance. So, so that's uh, you know, possible. So Vedana Upasana for this person. So thank you very much for the questions. I thought there'd be more questions with this sutta because it's a real powerhouse of a sutta, I feel, anyway. So, and for those who would like to, we can pay respects to Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, to the Buddha for teaching these beautiful teachings.